and welcome to the Murder and Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Summer. Happy New Year. I hope 2022 is better. And that's all I'm going to say about that. And welcome to Season 3 of the Murder and Mystery Podcast. I can't believe we're already in Season 3. That just blows my mind that this has been going for this long. We will be celebrating our second anniversary here coming up. And uh, this will be our third year of actually recording. So, wow. Uh, Thank you guys. Thank you for listening. And I hope that... Again, this year is much better. This season is much better. Uh, last season was really short because of personal issues. Starting a podcast in COVID has not been all it's cracked up to be. <laughs> but we're doing it. And I wanted to start season three off with a bang or rather a slash. So, I've been saving this one for a special occasion. It's really long. If you know anything about me, you know that I write a lot of notes, and this is 20 pages of notes. So, we have a really long podcast today, but it is, I hope you will find that it's worth it. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about Jack the Ripper, and I am so excited because anytime a Johnny Depp movie is made about something, you know it has to be good, right? But let's get started kind of setting our scene. Because there is a lot of stuff that I didn't know, really, before I dived into this uh, mystery. And I want to share some of that information with you. So picture this London in the 1880s you got that picture in your mind do you picture overcrowded streets full of impoverished people how about streets full of unemployed transient and immigrant families if this doesn't fit your picture of London in this time period Well, that didn't really fit England's picture either. And so that is why they divided the east end of the city. Well, they didn't really divide it, but these people were kind of pushed into the east end. And it was divided naturally to contain these poor individuals and keep them separate from their fellow middle-class citizens. The divide was natural because it had once been outside the city walls and because of that it just kind of fit. It was its own little city within a city anyway. So, another name for the East End that most Ripper fans would know is Whitechapel. So, Whitechapel is the name of the main street that runs through the East End. Um, It runs through a majority of London and goes 
through the East End. And although these murders weren't necessarily on Whitechapel Road, they were in this area that was known as the Whitechapel area or the East End. It got its name from, this road got its name from the St. Mary Metphelon Church that had been built right outside of the city of London. Uh, This church was built outside of the city walls and allowed the less desirable individuals to attend mass. Those people who lived outside of the city proper, country people that weren't necessarily your middle class Londoners, those that were maybe wanted by the law, those that didn't have the most desirable professions, uh, transients, you know, people that just kind of floated around. These individuals were able to attend Mass in this church. And because the church was there and these people attended church and stuff, of course, that area started to build up because, you know, people would start to build around the church. It attracted industries that were not necessarily welcome inside of the city due to their pollution. This included things like tanneries, breweries, and brothels. So it became known as welcoming the unwelcome. It grew as unemployment and immigration grew. So as more poor people came into the area, this area, this White Chapel area started to grow and it just became part of the city. And as time moved on, the city kind of adopted it. It became part of the city. But it was also cut off by railroads that were built and docks. Um, There were nearby docks that brought work and stuff and more bodies into this inner city area and with these docks that were built became towering warehouses the railroads that brought in people uh, more people that would hop on the railroads and ride them in Um, but these towering warehouses also made dark foreboding strips like alleyways that were perfect for criminal activity. So this area didn't have the best reputation. By the 1880s, this area was rough and tumble place full of hardworking, and yes, I did say hardworking citizens, transient individuals who were looking for a place to stay for a bit, So people who were just coming in and looking for a way to earn some quick money and then leaving. Uh, And those who were down on their luck, those who were unemployed and those who were having a hard time. 
for the most part, this area looked at everybody as a family. They were all struggling. They were all in the same boat. And so they became close. And everybody knew everybody else unless they were transient or somebody that was just drifting through. But even then, you know, people would talk to them and faces were known and people were known. And so they kind of looked out for each other. In fact, during this time, the number one cause of death for the area was bronchial disease which was due to pollution from the factories in the area. The 1887 Bill of Mortality showed no homicides in the East End for the area of 1887. So this doesn't mean that there weren't accidental manslaughters or natural deaths. You know, things that seemed innocent enough but you know maybe they weren't as innocent as they were recorded to be but there weren't any outright homicides in the area so although this area had a reputation of being a tough spot in a place where you know you don't go to and maybe the middle class whispered about It wasn't really as bad as it was made out to be. This is not to say that the East End was a safe place to wander at all. Um, With the majority of the population living at the poverty line and many facing starvation on a daily basis, a lot of them being homeless or close to homelessness, theft was a big thing in this area. So... There were activities that were not just reserved for large men who loomed in dark alleyways. Men, women, children, families resorted to petty theft to make ends meet, to be able to have a bed to sleep in that night or to, you know, have food. Women also had another way of providing for their families. Prostitution was very common in the East End. At any given time, there were as many as 1,200 sex workers in that area. So this was very common. It was legal. And it was a way that women could very quickly bring in some money for themselves and for their families. This was also a time of political unrest Um, economic problems, and the perception that the East End was a den of immortality. Immorality. Immortality. Yeah. Um, Immorality. It wasn't a bunch of immortals living there. They were immorals. (laughs) So this area was not a place that a good, upstanding citizen would really spend a lot of time in and so that is probably why these murders weren't given the attention they should have been given maybe if they had been done in a 
better area in London, um, the Ripper would have been caught. Maybe this person knew that. Or maybe it just unfolded the way it unfolded because of that. But like all good murderers, it's thought that the Ripper had some practice victims. So not just the Canical Five. I mean, really, a murderer doesn't usually just get up one day and walk out and start perfectly slashing up victims and get away with it. Usually. Usually there's some that aren't exactly the way that they wanted didn't go exactly perfect and then they have they perfect their mo right so in february of 1888 annie millwood uh, may have been one of the first ripper victims though she actually lived to tell the tale she was admitted to the Whitechapel Infirmary on February 25th, 1888, with stab wounds to her legs and lower abdomen. She reported being stabbed by an unknown man with a clasp knife, which was a switchblade, but the blade can be locked in place. So it's a switchblade that like opens up, but the blade can be locked so that it's sturdy and, you know, can do more damage. Uh, there were no witnesses to her attack. She was residing at Spitafield's Chambers and was thought to be a sex worker at the time. Nobody knew who this person was. Nobody had seen it. She didn't know who it was. And she died in March of 1888 of natural causes that weren't related to her injuries. So she died just um, a few weeks later. And then in March 1888, you have Ada Wilson, who approached her home in the Bow area in the evening of March 28, 1888. And as she reached her door, an unknown male assailant stabbed her twice with the clasp knife in the neck. She also lived through her attack. So, in February and March, you have this person who's just stabbing women with this knife. April 1888, Emma Elizabeth Smith, who's 45, had been visiting a local taverns on the night of April 2nd. So now we're moving into April. It was Easter Monday and a bank holiday, so the streets were actually really crowded that evening because nobody had worked that day. And she was seen by her friend Margaret Hayes on the corner of Burdett Road and Ference Street, where she stopped by, where she was stopped by two well-dressed men. So one of the men, dressed in a dark suit and a white scarf, hit her in the mouth. She walked away from the man quickly. Of course, I mean... She was hit in the mouth, so why would you stick around? Well, you would hope she would walk away. At 1.30 that morning, Emma was walking along Whitechapel Road, headed home to 2 George Street, 
where she saw a group of men ahead of her. One of the young men started toward her, and she crossed the road and turned down Osborne Street, which merged a short distance into a brick lane. Emma claimed that the men followed her, beat her, and stole her money and raped her, one of them ramming a blunt object into her vagina. She made it back home and told her friends who took her to the hospital, and it was there that she repeated her story and later died of her injuries. Although she claimed she was raped and injured by a group of men, Walter Drews, a policeman at the time of her attack, did not believe that this was the work of a group of men. He believed she was attacked by one man and was scared to tell what had happened, even with her death looming near. So, Walter's the one that later connected Emma back to Jack the Ripper and stated that she was one of his earlier victims because she's the first one that actually died of her injuries and it was pretty brutal. So, that one I'm not quite sure of because she did say it was a group of men and... You know, I don't know why you would say it was a group of man, men if it was only one man. And, well, it doesn't completely fit the MO. I could see this person early on in the progression toward Ripperdom stabbing and starting to figure out the M.O., but beating and raping, and that's just not really the M.O., but this police officer connected her back to one of the Ripper's earliest victims because this was so brutal, and those types of brutal murders didn't happen in this area. And who knows, maybe the Ripper was just trying something different. August 6th, 1888, the night was cold and gloomy, but Martha Tabram was still out drinking and hoping that somebody else would pick up the tab. She met up with a friend, Mary Ann Conley, and they met soldiers that took them out drinking. And at 11, she was seen by her sister-in-law entering the White Swan, Swan Pub on High Street. Miss Connolly told police the foursome left the pub a while later, and Martha took her soldier to a narrow passage called George Yard for some privacy, while Miss Conley took her soldier to Angel Alley. So they went to these separate dark areas for privacy, and the next time Martha was seen, she was dead and stabbed 40 times. Martha was found around 4.45 the next morning by John Reeves, a resident of the building on George Yard, who was leaving to find work that day. Uh, the stab wounds were brutal, uh, with her left lung being pierced in five places and the right lung in two, her heart in one place, her liver in five places, her spleen in two places, and her stomach in six places. The coroner speculated that all of the wounds would have been done by a knife, except for one that had cut through her breastbone that was done by a dagger, a sword, or a bayonet. So, this 
person apparently stabbed her numerous times and then took out a different weapon and tried to cut through her breastbone. Police thought that they would be easy to identify Martha's killer because Marianne Connolly's testimony of the soldiers they'd went out with. You know, Martha had gone into this dark road and then she was dead, right? She went into this road with this man and then she's dead. He's the one who did it. However, Miss Connolly did not show up at the lineup to identify the soldiers that she had said they were with. And when police finally caught up to her and brought her in to make the identification, she made a big show and finally said the men weren't there. At this time, she changed her description of their uniforms and identified them as tower guards instead of soldiers. Police set up a lineup of tower guards and she identified two men that she stated the women went out with on that night. However, these two men already had alibis and they were airtight alibis. So the police were left doubting her story and believing that she was actually never with Martha that night. And this was more in line with Martha's sister-in-law's account because Martha's sister-in-law didn't mention Miss Connolly or the soldiers when she saw her entering the White Swan pub. She just saw Martha. And police were at a dead end at this point because they didn't have any clues. Uh, their only lead was gone and the trail was now cold. So they didn't believe that she was with this woman who said that she was with her. Maybe she was looking for attention. Oh, I went out with this friend and this friend ended up dead. And that's a good ploy for sympathy, um, attention, somebody to take care of her for a little while maybe. I don't know, but who knows why people make up things and say these things. But I guess she wanted a story, and so they think she made up the story. March 31st, 1888, um, like Martha, Mary Ann Nichols, and now we're kind of getting into those Canical Five, the ones that they're certain were Ripper victims, because Martha, they weren't sure. It wasn't exact, but now we're getting into the ones that all of these were the same. The five that were the same. So like Martha, Mary Ann Nichols had a love for alcohol. And that had come between her and her family. And so she was living in boarding houses in the East End and struggling to survive. Uh, her love for drink very well may have ultimately led to her fate as she chose to spend the stormy day of August 30th in the pubs. It was later reported by one of the women that had also stayed at the Wilmot boarding house around 1 a.m. while Mary Ann and a couple of other women were warming themselves by the fire a house deputy came in and asked for their money for their bed because these women, these boarding houses, they paid by the night. They weren't like, they didn't rent them by the month. And so they're inside and they're warming themselves. And, well, 
she had been out drinking all day, so she didn't have her money for her bed. And so she had to go back out to get her money. At 3.40 a.m., Charles Cross is walking along Brady Street and the north side of Bucks Row. Uh, as he gets close to the gates of Brown Stables, he sees what he believes is a pile of fabric, like a fabric tarp. And he thinks there might be something that he can use in this pile. So he goes to the gate to like rummage through the pile and see if there's something that he can take. But it's not a pile of clothes. He gets closer and he sees it's actually a woman laying in front of the gate. He hears footsteps coming up the street behind him. And so as that person gets closer, he calls out. He says, hey, I found a body over here. Hey, come help. And so Robert Paul walks up to him and they get closer to the woman to get a better look. Um, because at this time, the street lamps were not electric. So they didn't throw off, you know, really bright light. They were gas. And so they were flame. And it was just this murky glow from a distant lamp that they had. It was pretty dark back there. So they had to get closer to really see, you know, what's going on. And there's this woman laying there. Is she drunk? Is she sleeping? Is she dead? What's going on? So they get closer and... So laying on the hard packed ground in the front of the looming gate of the stables is Marianne Nichols. Her skirts are pulled up almost to her waist. Um, they pulled them down to give her some dignity and left to find help. Of course, nowadays that would be a huge no-no because you're tampering with evidence. You're getting your DNA and stuff all over. But at that time, they didn't know anything about DNA and stuff. So... They were giving her some dignity. After the two men left, Constable John Neal entered Bucks Row from Thomas Street. And he had been through Bucks Row 30 minutes prior. This was part of his beat. So he had walked through there and hadn't seen anything out of the ordinary. Everything was fine. And now he sees this bundle by the gate of Brown Stables. So like these other two men... He goes up and he has a lantern to help him light the way because, you know, he's a police officer and he's out there trying to protect the citizens. And he gets closer and he clearly sees this dead woman laying on the ground as Charles and Robert had just seen her a few moments ago. However, he sees that there's blood slowly running from a gash at her neck. And this is something that they didn't see because they didn't have the light. So once the body was taken to the mortuary, this is where the full horror of her wounds were discovered. Because it was dark in this road. They didn't have a lot of light. And she had clothing and there's just a lot of blood and stuff. So when they get her to the mortuary, they find out that she had a four-inch cut to her throat, and a second eight-inch long cut that was so deep it went down to her vertebrae. 
So it went all the way down. It nearly cut her head off. There were several deep and deep and precise cuts along her sides and abdomen that led the doctors to believe that the attacker had some sort of medical training. They also deduced that the attacker was left-handed, used his left hand to make the incisions, so possibly left-handed. So these were some pretty vicious cuts. And so these were different than the other attacks. Um, A lot different than Martha's attack where she was just beaten and raped. And different than the stabbings that were just stabbed. These were actual slashes and cuts. So September 8th, 1888, Annie Chapman's body was found at 29 Hanbury Street. Annie is the second official and the oldest Ripper victim, but she, like the others, had a history of alcoholism and was a sex worker to supplement the small allowance her husband gave her. She was married. She had three children. However, she and her husband were separated, and he kept the kids. This was due to her alcohol use. Uh, She was just a very heavy drinker and... Because of that, she left her children and her husband behind. And her husband gave her this small allowance to help her make ends meet. But she needed more money to support her alcohol and to be able to have a room and food. So she worked as a sex worker. In the days leading up to her death, Annie found herself at the age of 47, alone and hustling the streets to make money for her bed for the night. Those who knew her said that she no longer drank often, maybe one drink a week. So she wasn't really drinking as much. Yet, in that week leading up to her death, she had been beaten and had been seen with bruises on her chest and eye. And she was sick. So, in fact, she had checked herself into the hospital a couple of days before and had just been released with medication. She was dying. She didn't actually know this, but she had a disease that was affecting her lungs and brain, uh, possibly tuberculosis and syphilis. And so, she she would have died soon anyway. But she didn't know it because medicine isn't what it is now. They didn't know that she was dying until they did the autopsy. Like many Ripper victims, Annie was trying to get money for her bed that night. So she had asked the manager at the boarding house to not rent out her bed that night. She told him that she would be right back. She was going out to get some fast money so she could have a warm place to stay. Remember, she was she was sick. And so she left the house at 1.45 and she never returned. At 4.40, John Richardson, the son of Amelia Richardson and the owner of the house of 29 Hanbury Street. Um, see, Amelia, who owned this house, ran her late husband's business out of the house, but also rented out the rooms to make ends meet. So in this house, she had a room And then the kitchen area and the backyard area or back garden. 
that she used for her business. All the other rooms in the house she rented out to different people and families. So this house was packed with people. Her son John worked for her and helped with this business but he didn't actually live in the house. And he was coming in that morning when he noticed that the front door wasn't locked. It was shut but it wasn't locked. So he was able to easily push it open. He walked through the house into the back of the house and pushed open the back door. So the first thing he did was look at the cellar because the cellar area, that's where they kept all of their tools and stuff for their business. And it had been broken into in the past and tools had been stolen. So he was worried about that. He looked, the padlock was on the cellar. Everything was good. So he left the house. Seeing that this was untouched, he fussed with the shoe a little bit, walked back through the back door, letting it swing shut, walked back through the house and out the front door. And he was adamant that he shut the front door when he left. Now, why he came into the house, walked through the house, and then right back out, nobody knows. It's not documented, but that's what he did. At 5.30, so almost an hour later, Annie was seen in front of 29 Hanbury Street talking to an unknown man. This was shortly after Albert Cadsox, a neighbor at 27 Hanbury Street, who shared a fence with the backyard or the garden of 29 Henbury Street, heard the voice of a woman. So shortly after this, I'm sorry, I said this was shortly before. Shortly after this, this neighbor went out into his back garden area. And so the backyard, back garden area at the very back of it was where their outhouse was, their bathroom. And so he had gone out there and he heard... A, heard voices, heard a woman say no, and heard something hit the fence. But it wasn't like a fight or a tussle or anything. It was just like quiet voices, a thud of something hitting the fence, and that was it. He didn't look over the fence to see what was going on. He just minded his own business. John Davis, who was one of the renters that lived at 29 Hanbury Street, um, woke up at 5.30 that morning and fixed himself some tea and then made his way downstairs to head to work. As he got to the bottom of the stairs, he noticed the front door was open. So remember, Richard said that he had shut the door at 4.40 when he left. He had shut the door. Well, now John is saying that the door was open when he came downstairs an hour later. So he comes downstairs, the front door is open, and he, so he walks to the back of the house, I don't know, looking to see is somebody else up, you know, what's going on, and he gets to the back of the house, to the hall where the backyard is, and that's where he sees a body. So he goes to the back of the house, he opens the back door, and there's a body back there. So John runs back through the house, out the front door, where he sees James Green, James Kent, and Henry Holloway on the street. And so he alerts them to what happened, and then he runs to the police station to get help. 
So police come and they find that Annie had a swollen face and a protruding tongue that indicated she had been suffocated in some way. Her throat was slashed all the way across from the left side. Apparently this happened while she was standing up because there were smears of blood on the fence at about the same height where her throat would have been. There were two distinct cuts on the left side of her spine with marks that looked like they were attempt to separate the bones of her neck. Her abdomen had been opened and her intestines were removed and placed on her right shoulder. Her uterus, ovaries, and the upper part of her vagina and two-thirds of her bladder had been removed. So she was mutilated pretty badly. Uh, she was buried on September 14th with only family present during a secret funeral service. They didn't want to like make a big production of it because they didn't want a bunch of people like looking on. September 27th. 1888, the first letter that is thought to be written by the Ripper arrived. So during this time, hundreds of letters were pouring into newspapers and police stations, but they were thought to be hoaxes. Uh, they were written by newsmen who were trying to start a story, by others trying to stir up more terror. You know, they were looking to just cause a scene. But this one, although it was originally thought to be a hoax until later because things in the letter happened later, it was later thought that maybe this really was written by this murderer. So it read, Dear Boss, I keep hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me yet. I laugh when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. The joke about leather apron gave me fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them until I'm buckled. Grand work the last job was. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do shall clip the ladies' ears off and send them to the police officers just for jollies, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I have the chance. Good luck, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind giving me the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it, no luck. They think I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. September 30th brought two victims. Elizabeth Stride, who was 45 at the time of her death, and Catherine Eddowes. So Elizabeth had married John Stride in 1869 and they ran a coffee shop until 1875 when the business was taken over by John Dell. In 1878, a saloon steamship, the Princess Alice, collided with the steamer Bywell Castle on the Thames River. There was a loss of 700 lives, and Elizabeth claimed her husband was one of these lives. 
She also claimed to have injured her palate when she was kicked in the mouth climbing the mast of the ship while escaping the disaster. There was no evidence of her actually being on the ship at the time of the accident. And there's documentation that John Stride actually died in 1884 and not 1878. When they did the autopsy on her, they also found no damage to her hard or soft palate. So they think this story was something that she told just to get sympathy, especially from the Swedish church that she frequented. In 1885, Elizabeth moved in with Michael Kidney, and they lived together for three years, but he reported that she often left and went off drinking. Their relationship was described as stormy, and both of them had been arrested numerous times, Elizabeth's count being eight for drunken disorderly conduct. They fought often, and in the days leading up to her murder, Elizabeth had been staying in a border house due to a fight with Michael. So they had been fighting quite a bit. On September 30th, 1888, Elizabeth had a drink at a local pub at 6.30 and then went back to her boarding house. She left the boarding house at 8 o'clock that evening and was seen with at least two different men between 11 and 12.45. At 1 a.m., Louis Deemschutz was driving his cart, his horse and cart, into Duckfield's yard when his horse shied. It was dark and he couldn't tell much, but then he found the body of a woman in front of his horse. Not able to wake the woman, he went into the International Working Men's Education Club to get help. When a group of men came out, they realized that her throat was slashed and she was dead. So, upon her autopsy, it was found that her throat had a six-inch cut that was deep enough to sever all the vessels. There were no other wounds on her body. So, it was thought that when Lewis came through on his horse and cart... He scared the ripper off, and so he didn't finish the job. He just, he killed her, but he didn't get to go on and finish the job. Catherine Eddowes had been orphaned as a child and lived with her aunt until she was 21, and then she left, she left the home with Thomas Conway. Uh, they were never married, but they had three children. And in 1881, Catherine left Thomas, taking the two younger children, and went to London to stay in a lodging house. And that's where she met John Kelly and started a relationship with him. Catherine was said to have been educated but to have a temper. And she did not drink often, but she did so occasionally. So in September 1888, Catherine and John Kelly went hot picking and returned to London on September 26th with a little money, with very little money between the two. Catherine took enough for a bed at a boarding house and sent John to get a bed at a men's boarding house. So they separated and went off to find beds. And then on the 29th, they met up and pawned his boots for money for food. They had breakfast, and at 2 o'clock that afternoon, she left to go to her daughter's house to ask for money. She promised 
John that she would be back by four, but she didn't know that her daughter had moved since the last time she'd seen her. So she went off, but she couldn't find her daughter because her daughter had moved. Now, I have to say that her and her daughter didn't have a great relationship. I mean, obviously. At 8 that evening, Catherine was drunk and taken into custody since she was unable to stand on her own and no one knew who she was or knew where she lived. So they took her in to the police station, kept her till she sobered up, and between 12.55 and 1 o'clock that morning, she was released. At 1.30, she was seen by several men who were leaving the Imperial Club and she was talking to a man. And at 1.45, a police officer found her body in Mitre Square, close to where she had been talking to that man just minutes earlier. Her throat was cut, her abdomen was cut open, her intestines were pulled out and placed on her shoulder. Sound familiar? One of her ears was cut off, and her face had been cut in several places, uh, many of which were very deep, one deep enough to take off her nose. So on October 1st, a new letter arrived at the Central News Agency. This letter referenced both the double murder of the night before and the previous letter that they had received. So now they're thinking, okay, that other letter wasn't a hoax, and maybe this really is the murderer writing us. It said, I was not cotting, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow's double event. This time, one squealed a bit, couldn't finish her off, her straight off. Ha, huh, not the time to get the ears for the police. Thanks for keeping last letter back till I got to work again. Jack the Ripper. October 16th, George Lusk, who was the president of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, received a small cardboard with a letter written on it, along with half a human kidney preserved in wine. The kidney was very similar to one removed from Catherine Eddowes, but they weren't able to prove that it was hers, because remember, they didn't have DNA at that time. The letter read, From Hell, Mr. Lusk, Sir, I send you half the kidney I took from one woman and preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you wait a while longer. Signed, Catch Me When You Can, Mr. Lusk. So, November 9th, 1888, we have Mary Jane Kelly murdered. So, she was 25 at the time of her death. Mary was born in Ireland, but her family moved to Wales when she was a child. She was married at the age of 16, but her husband died in an explosion a few years later. Some research suggests she had a child with her husband, but there isn't evidence of this. She lived with a cousin who was a sex worker for a while, and then she arrived in England in 1884. It's thought she went to stay with nuns and was eventually placed in a domestic servant shop. But then she was staying with Joseph Barnett, which was a man that she lived with until August or September, when he lost his job and she returned to the streets. 
She told him that she worked for a high-class brothel and accompanied one gentleman to Paris, but when she returned, she, but she returned because she didn't like it there. So, who knows, because she told a lot of stories. On the night of November 8th, Mary saw Joseph Barnett at a boarding house until 8 o'clock. So, she was with him until 8 o'clock that night. There is no confirmed sighting of Mary between 8 and 11 that evening. She was seen at 11.45 with Marianne Cox, by Marianne Cox, who reported she was with the man who escorted her to the door of her boarding house. Mary Ann saw them because she was walking down the street. Uh, she walked by them. She said goodnight. And Mary said something about going to sing and then started singing very loudly. Mary Ann Cox believed that she was drunk. At 12.30, Catherine Pickett is awoken by Mary singing. And her husband stops her from going downstairs and yelling at her. Tells her, leave that poor woman alone. You know, just stay in bed. One o'clock, Marianne returns to her room to warm up because it started to rain and sees light under Mary's door. So Marianne Cox sees light under Mary Jane Kelly's door and hears her singing in her room. So she's in her room. She's singing. Two o'clock a.m., Mary meets George Hutchinson on the street so this is Mary Jane Kelly meets George Hutchinson on the street and asks him for money. He doesn't have any, but tells her he doesn't have any money. So he tells her he doesn't have any money. And so she says, okay, and she's going to go find money somewhere else. So George did mention having passed a man on the street, but didn't pay any attention to him. She, he just walked past him. And then Mary Jane Kelly stopped him. He talked to her. And then Mary walks off from him and meets this guy that George had passed. And the two of them walk off together. George reported that the man had a parcel in his hand. So at 4 o'clock, Elizabeth Prater wakens and hears a cry of, Oh, murder! Sarah Lewis heard the same cry about that same time. So two people are awakened by this cry of murder. Two people claim to have seen Mary on the morning of November 9th, one at 8 a.m. and one at 10 a.m., but both sightings were after her official time of death, so they were discounted. They said that they weren't real. And this comes into play later, so we'll talk about that later in, in one of the theories. So, 1045, John McCarthy went to collect Mary's rent. He received no answer from his knock, and the door was locked, so he peers in the window, and he sees her mutilated body. So, he goes and gets police. When they get back and they open the door, Mary is lying on the floor, and she's wearing only her chemise, her underclothing. Her clothes are folded neatly and her boots are by the hearth. Her abdomen is cut open and emptied of all of its internal organs. Her breasts are cut off. Her arms and face are mutilated. Her uterus, kidneys, and one breast is placed under her head. The other breast is at her right foot. Her liver is placed between her feet. 
the intestines by the right side of her body and her spleen by her left. The flaps of skin from her abdomen and thighs were on the table. Her neck is cut down to the bone and blood is sprayed on the walls. Her heart was removed. So her heart was gone. And that was in her room in a locked room. That also comes into play later. So now we're getting into some that may have been the Ripper. On November 21st, Annie Farmer was attacked and made the accusation that the man was the Ripper. Annie had been married but had left her husband and returned to the streets. She was 40 years old at the time of her attack. And at 7.30 a.m., Annie and a man of shabby genteel arrived at Satchel's lodging house where he paid for the room. Two hours later, Annie was heard screaming and the man ran from the room. He was heard to say, what a cow, as he ran out of the lodging house. Annie had a slight cut to her throat that was bleeding and she claimed to have been attacked by the ripper. It was later found that she'd hidden a coin in her mouth and police believe she was trying to rob the man, which led to an argument. They believe Annie grabbed a dull knife and pulled it out, pulled it across her own throat and started yelling that this man was the Ripper and this made him afraid, so he fled the, sl- the scene. However, he never came back, never turned himself in to clear his name, and Annie's story never changed. So that one is debated. On December 20th, 1888, Rose Milet's body was found on Poplar High Street. Rose had been married but separated from her husband earlier in the year. She had one daughter who was eight and was attending school in Sutton. Like many of the other victims, Rose liked to drink. And at 7.55 on December 19th, She was seen speaking to two sailors on Poplar High Street near Clark's Yard. She appeared to be sober at the time. At 2.30 a.m., she was seen again on Commercial Road with two men, but appeared drunk at this time. At 4.15 a.m., her body was found in Clark's Yard on Poplar High Street by a police officer. She'd been strangled by a cord. The marks were very visible on her neck. She had blood coming from her nose and her brain was full of blood. So she'd been strangled to death. And the thing with the Ripper is they think that he was, or she, whoever, was strangling the victims and then slitting their throats. And that was what was keeping the blood from spraying everywhere because they were already dead at the time that the throat slitting happened. July 17th, 1889, the voice, the voice, the body of Alice McKenzie was found in Castle Alleyway. Little's known about Alice McKenzie's early life. Uh, She had been living with John McCormick for about nine years at this point, and he said she worked as a washerwoman for their neighbors. However, she was known to be a sex worker from time to time. At four o'clock that afternoon on July 16th, McCormick returned to his home and gave Alice money for the rent and necessities, uh, but she didn't pay the rent. 
Instead, she took a blind boy to the Royal Cambridge Music Hall and returned home about 8.30, where she had a spat with McCormick and leaves the house again. At 11, McCormick leaves the house and is told that Alice did not pay the rent. So, at 11.40, Alice is seen by a friend walking hurriedly toward Whitechapel. At 12.50, Alice's body is found in Castle Alleyway by a police officer only 27 minutes after he had last left the alleyway. So, this police officer was there, and he was on his beat. He was there. Nobody was there. And he goes on. He walks around, comes back around to the alleyway, and there's her body. And it was only 27 minutes. Her throat is slit. She had been stabbed in the neck. She had several bruises on her chest and abdomen. Uh, she also had cuts on her abdomen and genital area. The cuts were deep, but not excessively deep. There has been a debate about her being a ripper victim, but some of the police believe that she was based on the type of mutilation after her death. So then we have February 13th. 1891, the body of Frances Coleman was found on Swallow Gardens. Frances had been a sex worker for about eight years, and her family didn't know about this trade. Nor did they know about James Sadler, who she had been spend, she'd spent the night with on February 11th and the day with February 12th bar hopping. They had a fight at one point, and Francis returned to the lodge house where they had been staying the night where they'd stayed the night before, at eleven thirty that night. She fell asleep. Uh, she was drunk, so she fell asleep before Sadler returned with a bloody face and yelling that he had been robbed. He then leaves the boarding house at twelve o'clock, and Francis is still asleep at the table. Francis leaves the boarding house between twelve thirty and one because she doesn't have money for her bed, and at 1.30, she gets a meal at Shuttleworth on Wentworth Street. She eats alone, and she leaves at 1.45. She then bumps into a fellow sex worker, and while talking, the two are approached by a man. The man solicits the friend, and when she turns him down, he punches her in the face. Frances is then solicited, and she walks off with the man. So, she watches this man punch her friend in the face, and then she walks off with him. I don't know, maybe she was afraid of being punched in the face. At 2.15 uh, in the morning, a police officer, who was only in his second month on the force, and this is his first time on the streets alone, made his way towards Swallow Gardens as part of his beat, where he heard retreating footsteps in the distance. And as he turned the corner and shone his light into the shadows of Swallow Gardens, he saw a body of a woman. Blood flowed from her throat and she blinked one eye. Since she was still alive, police procedure dictated that he stay with her so he didn't follow the retreating footsteps. And she died later. So this is something that always bothered him that he wasn't able to chase after these footsteps because he thought maybe he could have caught the ripper had he chased after the footsteps that he heard. But he couldn't because she was still alive and wasn't dead at that moment. But she died quickly after. Sadler was at first arrested for her murder, 
but was found to have been too drunk at the time of the murder, and it's not believed that he did it. There are many believe, who believe that she was a Ripper victim. And the last victim to be attributed to Jack the Ripper is Carrie Brown, who was found on April 24th, 1891 in New York City. So now we're in America. Carrie was an American sex worker who checked into the East River Hotel. So Carrie checked into this hotel with a man between 10.30 and 11 p.m. and her body was found the next morning. Not much was written about the murder and the exact wounds are unknown, but it was found that she'd been strangled and reports stated that it looked like someone tried to gut her. Amir bin Ali was arrested for her murder, but it was later found that blood stains that were used to convict him had been caused by the botch investigation. So he had a room there at the hotel and blood was found in his room but it was later found that this was contaminated by police when they were investigating his room, so he was let off. He was released, and the murder continues to be unsolved. However, her death was connected to Jack the Ripper based on a particular suspect. There were also three unsolved murders involving women's torsos being found during the time of the Ripper killings. These were all connected by police, but were not considered to be victims of the Ripper. However, they're, noted, they're worth noting that there were three women's torsos found at this time. And remember, there were no major homicides in this area until all of this started. It should be mentioned that the only victims that were positively connected to the Ripper are Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. They are the five canical ripper victims. The other victims are speculated due to similarities in their inner injuries, the areas that they were murdered or attacked, or in Carrie Brown's case, because of the way that she was murdered and the possibility that the suspect was in America at the time. So let's go into suspects. There's a long list of suspects associated with Jack the Ripper. But first, let's look at some of the witness descriptions. Because there are a lot of witnesses that saw these women with men on the night of the murder. And so some of these descriptions, I think, are really important for us to note. Looking at Elizabeth Stride, John Best described a man that was five feet five inches tall, wearing a black suit and coat with a hat, and had a thick black mustache. James Brown described a man who was about five feet seven inches tall with a stout build and a long overcoat and hat. Now, I do want to say that when you're looking at coats and stuff, you know, it might be hard to tell a build, especially in the dark. So, and also... Hard to judge height, especially when you've got somebody with a hat. Uh, William Marshall described a man who was middle-aged, stout, and about five foot six inches tall, dressed respectably in black trousers, a black cutaway coat, and a peaked hat. So, those were some of the witnesses for Elizabeth Stride. 
let's see, Francis Cole, a witness, Ellen Kalana, who was the sex worker that was with Francis Cole and was hit in the mouth by the man, um, who then walked off with Francis, said that the man was short with a dark mustache, shiny boots, and was dressed like a sailor. Mary Jane Kelly, Marianne Cox, remember she was walking past Mary Jane Kelly, who was with the man at her door. Uh, she saw this man and briefly described him as being short, stout, and a shabby coat and hat, had a blotched complexion and a red mustache. Now, George Hutchinson. George saw her and described the man as being, see, remember, he's the one that she came up to and asked for money, and he didn't have money, and he said that he had passed a man and then saw her go off with this man that he had passed, but he hadn't paid much attention. Well, now he says that when they walked past him, he got a good look at this man. And so the man was described as being 34 years old, five foot six inches tall with a pale complexion, dark eyes, a slight mustache curled at the, at the ends and dark hair, he was surly in nature and wore a long, dark coat with a dark suit underneath, a dark felt hat, and buttoned boots. He had a thick gold chain, a white linen collar, and a black tie with a horseshoe pin. So he was very, very descriptive in this. Sarah Lewis saw a man outside of the lodging house where Mary Jane Kelly had stayed. He was standing across the street and looked like he was expecting somebody. He was described as not being tall, being stout, wearing a black hat. She said she later saw a man with a similar build that asked her and a friend to follow him into a passageway. He carried a bag and had a pale complexion and a black mustache. Annie Farmer, remember she's the one that was attacked and said that she was attacked by the Ripper. Esther Hall described the man who attacked Annie Farmer in the lodging house as wearing dark clothes and having a black mustache. Philip Harris reported the man who attacked Annie Farmer as being five foot six inches tall, wearing a long coat with a cape and having a black mustache. With Catherine Eddowes, we have Joseph LeWind, who reported seeing a woman wearing clothing similar to Catherine Eddowes standing with a man near where her body was found. The man was said to be in his 30s, to be about 5 foot 9 inches tall with a fair complexion and a small fair mustache. He was wearing a shabby salt and pepper coat, a red handkerchief around his neck, and a cap with a peak. Annie Chapman Elizabeth Long described a man as being older in his 40s and wearing a deerstalker hat, which is like the one that Sherlock Holmes uh, wore. He was also wearing a dark coat, and she thought he was foreign. Elizabeth Stride. William Marshall reported a man described as middle-aged, stout, around five foot six. He was dressed respectably in black trousers and a black cutaway coat with a peaked hat. Martha Tabram, Police Constable Thomas Barrett, described a soldier that he saw lording in the area. 
before Martha's body was found. He was described as being between the ages of 22 and 26, 5 foot 9 inches tall, a light complexion with dark hair and a mustache that was twisted up on the ends. So we have a lot of reports of men with dark mustaches and dark hair in dark coats and hats. Other reports, Elizabeth Allen gave evidence to police about a suspect that may have lived near Buck Row called Leather Apron. Um, Leather Apron we've heard before, but this tends to be possibly from the research that I have read having to do with more of Jewish individuals and those especially who were butchers in the area. So there was um, a lot of speculation that the Ripper was Jewish. Again, um, there was a lot of political unrest and this was a difficult time in London. Uh, Thomas Eddy reported a strange man around the time of Marianne Nichols' murder. He described the man as being 5 foot 8 inches tall, about 35 years old with a dark mustache. He walked stiffly and had a knife in his pocket. And Joseph Taylor also reported a suspicious man during the time of the murders. He was described as being 5 foot 8 inches tall, having a red mustache. He wore shabby, ill-fitting clothing and appeared nervous and frightened. In 1988, the FBI profile states Jack the Ripper was most likely a white male between the ages of 28 and 36 living near the Whitechapel area, had the absence of a father figure in childhood, had a profession in which he could legally experience his destructive tendencies, had a physical defect that could cause him great frustration and anger, and most likely stopped killing because he felt he was close to being caught or was arrested for another crime. So those are some of the witness statements. Let's look at suspects. Now, there are a ton of suspects, so I only picked the ones that I thought best fit and I felt were most accurate because some of them that I found were just off the wall or were completely ruled out. There was no way that it was them. So first we have James Kelly. He was born to 15-year-old Sarah Kelly on April 20th, 1860. His mother leaves him with his grandmother, and he never meets his mother. His mother later marries a wealthy man who dies four years later, leaving her money. One month after, his, after the husband dies, his mother dies, and leaves the money in a trust for James. In 1875, James's grandmother tells him about his history and his inheritance. This is when he learns that the person that he thought was his mother was actually his grandmother. Uh, she died in 1876. James worked as an apprentice uh, to an, an upholsterer while completing his education. Uh, he finished school and got a job in Liverpool as a pawnbroker, but his erratic mood swings 
and he, he acted irrationally. And so he left the job in 1878 and moves to London where he finds work as an upholsterer there. In December 1881, he meets Sarah Brider and he eventually moves into her home as a boarder. So Sarah brings him home to her parents and they think that he's a wonderful man and will make a great match for her. And now he's living in her home, but he is sharing a room with another gentleman. It's not like he's living in the home with just her. But they start to um, get closer and she eventually consents to give her virginity to James, even though they aren't married. And, well, James has been with sex workers and he has trouble with Sarah. He can't penetrate her and so he tells her that she is deformed. After this, they have a lot of relationship problems and he begins to act very erratically again. You know, his behaviors had kind of stopped and he was okay for a while. In 1883, he finds out he has a venereal disease and rather than seeing a doctor, he decides to treat it himself. He experiences headaches and discharge from his ears. He becomes worse and he's actually dismissed from his job because of his erratic behaviors and his temper. Even though he's dismissed from his job and even though all of this is going on, he still goes ahead and he marries Sarah in 1883, on June 4th, 1883. On June 18th, 1883, James becomes enraged at Sarah and starts accusing her of things. And then he stabs her in the neck. Now, this isn't the first time that they fought or that he's taken his temper out on her, but this is the first time that it's gotten really physical. And on June 24th, she dies of her wounds and James is convicted of murder. However, he's found to be, an ins be insane and is sent to Broadmoor Asylum rather than to prison. On January 23rd, 1888, so now we're into 1888, he escapes from the asylum and returns to London. And at this point, little is known about his movements between July and December. So they know he goes to London, but nobody knows where he's at. There's a note in the police file for the Whitechapel murders that James should be looked into for these murders. On January 1882, he takes a steamship to New York. And in 1896, he gives himself up to the British consul in New Orleans, where he returns to London. And at this point, he goes back and forth between London, Liverpool, and America until 1927, when he returns to Broadmoor Asylum and is readmitted, where he remains until he dies. Reasons he's a suspect. He was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He was capable of murder with a knife. He murdered his own wife. He had once believed his wife had given him a venereal disease, but they think that while he was in Broadmoor, he probably realized or was told that this disease was given to him by the sex workers 
that he frequented in Whitechapel, Spitalfields area, and this would have provided his motive. But there's no proof that ties him to these murders. His movements aren't well documented, and it's not really known that he was in London in late 1888, just that he had gone to London. So then there's Francis Tumblety. He was born in 1883 and at some point moved to Rochester, New York. There are listings for his brother working as a gardener there in 1844 and another brother as a fireman in 1849. His neighbors reported him as an ignorant, uncared for, and good-for-nothing child. They stated he was dirty and sold pornographic material on canal boats. As a teen, he worked for a drugstore with Dr. Lisbinard, and it was said that he his business was disreputable. In 1850, he moved to Detroit and started a business as an Indian herb doctor, and he prospered. He made a lot of money there, and in the fall of 1857, he was in Montreal and was touted to be a reputable physician. He was arrested on September 23rd, 1857 for attempting an abortion for a sex worker. These charges were dropped on October 1st and he was released. In September 1860, he was again questioned after a patient died while taking medication that he had prescribed. Francis pointed a finger at the widow and left town for Maine. He traveled around America until the Civil War and he took a position as a Union surgeon and made claims of being friends with President Lincoln and General Grant. During his time in this position, his alleged hatred of women became very apparent. And he told a story of having fallen in love with an older woman and marrying her, only to find out later that she had been a sex worker. In 1860s, he began to travel to Europe and back, and in November 7th, 1888, he was arrested for gross indecency and indecent assault, homosexuality, with four men. On November 12th, he was charged with suspicion of the Whitechapel murders. He was bailed on November 16th, and his trial was postponed until December 10th, but he had fled to France and then back to New York. So, reasons he is a suspect. So, Tumblety hated women. Uh, he was in London at the time, and he fit the description. His description of being around that height, dark hair, dark mustache. He built himself as a physician and had some anatom anatomical knowledge. He was arrested during the time of the murders, and after he fled London, there were no more murders, if you only count the Canical Five. He used aliases and was able to disappear without a trace, per his history. He had a tendency toward violence. He had the money and the ability to change outfits and discard bloodstained clothes, which is something that a poorer gentlemen might not be able to do um, to just get rid of clothing that easily. But there's no evidence tying him to the murders and this would discard earlier murders and later murders that had been connected with the exception of Carrie Brown who was murdered in America at the time that Francis 
Tumble Tea had gone back to America. So then you have Francis Thompson. He is an English poet, but had spent six years in medical school, which would have at that time allowed him to complete medical school three times had he actually attended class and did what he was supposed to. He lived on the streets at one point and knew London's East End very well. In 1888, he began to write poetry about killing sex workers. Reasons he's a suspect. He lived in London's East End at the time of the murders. And in fact, he lived just across from Mary Jane Kelly, one of the victims. He had the medical knowledge. He carried surgical knives with him. Francis was a Catholic extremist who wrote about hating sex workers for their immorality. Each murder was committed on days once worshipped as saint days by Catholics. Each murder happened on old Roman Catholic ground. Francis's editor was a Catholic who rescued him from the streets in mid-November 1888. And he kept a strict control on his finances and movements afterwards. It's kind of made it sound like he thought he was the Ripper and was trying to control him. Francis' work was heavily edited. And many of his papers and original works were destroyed after he died. And his editor had a really intense interest in the murders before he rescued Francis. So it just really made it sound like his editor thought he was the one doing this. Then you have Count Luis Alejandro Alejo Torreson Cimaretti. So Cimaretti was born in Pest, which is a city that was later merged to become Budapest on July 7th, 1840. And he enlisted in the Austro-Hungarian army at a young age and quickly moved up in ranks. He also received certificates certifying him as a tanner and a butcher. And then on June 29, 1863, he deserted and vanished from sight. On October 1865, he signed up with the Argentine army to fight in the War of Triple Alliance. In May 1866, he, he was declared insane and was placed in an asylum, which he escaped on September 17, 1866. In 1867, he was working in Buenos Aires in a barber shop. He gained the trust of his employer and stole money and tools and disappeared. Then he wrote a letter to apologize to his employer and expressed wanting to work in Europe. His employer forgave him and helped him gain passage on a ship to Europe. However, Cimaretti stole the captain's wife's jewels and fled. Shortly after, he was recognized and arrested and spent six months in jail. After his release, he tricked a jewelry shop owner and then robbed the shop. He then went to Via Mercedes in San Luis province where he talked General Arandondo into financing his barber shop. While he was working as a barber, he met and befriended a photographer who confided in him that he had a significant savings put away from his, for his wedding. Size Moretti stole the money and then joined the search party for the perpetrator. 
He was caught and arrested, however, was released because they never could find the money. In 1874, he was arrested for an attempted murder of an Italian man. And once he was free, he joined General Ricardo Lopez Jordan as a medical doctor. He was captured during war and taken prisoner, but escaped and continued to steal and lie his way across the country to Europe and back. In July 18, on July 18, 1876, Cibaretti returned to Buenos Aires where he stayed in a hotel. And then he went to police and reported the theft of his valuables from the room. And he moved to another hotel. So it was thought that he had reported this theft only to get out of paying his hotel bill. On July 27, 1876, he arrived at 36 Corrientes Street, which was next door to a well-known brothel and a home that housed some of the girls, where he asked to go into the room of Catalina Metz. Uh, moments later, her procurer heard cries of help from the room. He ran in and found Catalina laying on the bed with her throat slit. Cimaretti was arrested for the murder and was and released from prison in 1881. On March 20th, 1882, he was arrested for desertion from the army and in 1885 declared insane and placed in an asylum. But then he was released to family members. Although little is known about his whereabouts for several years after his release, it's believed he went to London and posed as Elizondo Maduro. This places him in the Whitechapel area in 1888 at the time of the murders. And a friend, Griffith Salloway, reported Maduro flew into a rage when showed an article about the murders and stated all prostitutes should be murdered. Salloway also reported finding surgical knives at the bot in a false bottom of Maduro's trunk Shortly after this, Maduro disappears and the murders stop. September 26, 1892, Cimaretti was arrested in Slavica, and, and, uh, sorry, in Slovakia after being recognized as a thief. And while in jail, he took a knife from his pocket and slit his own throat. So why he's a suspect? He fits the description. He had a light complexion, dark hair, wearing a mustache. He had killed in the past in a similar way, you know, slitting throats, although he didn't butcher women in such a way. He was good at disappearing without a trace. Uh, he was trained as a butcher, so he would know how to dissect people in such a way and was good with knives. He portrayed himself as a doctor, and so he had anatomical knowledge. But there's no evidence outside of him being similar in look and name to Al Alonzo Maduro, but police have connected him. So he's one that police have actually connected him and like him as a suspect. Robert Donston Stevenson. So born April 20th, 1841 to a middle-class family. He studied chemistry and medicine. He returned home and had a large gambling debt. His father took care of the debt 
But in order for his father to take care of the debt, he had to break his contact with this specific sex worker he had a relationship with and marry an heiress, which he did. And he started working for customs, but lost his job due to not showing up. He then left and moved to London, where he decided to make a new life for himself. And in 1888, he was living in Whitechapel in a hospital as a patient diagnosed with neurasthenia, which is weakness of muscles, fatigue, or mental exhaustion. And he was bedridden. Robert asserts himself into the investigation by writing articles for the paper and even points a finger at one of the doctors in the hospital. So why he's a suspect? Um, he meets the physical profile, but a lot of people did. He had medical training. He was in Whitechapel at the time. However, even if he was faking his illness and wasn't stuck in his bed, was able to get up and get around, he would still have to be able to get in and out of the hospital without being noticed. He was involved in the investigation um, as a reporter from his hospital bed and was giving his opinion on the murders. So this could mean that he was trying to throw the cast doubt on other people to kind of get any attention off of him but at the same time it just seems unlikely that he would be able to do it but there's always the chance that he wasn't really sick and he was able to do it then you have the royal conspiracy and this comes up a couple of times actually so you have the queen's grandson eddie who was close to walter sickert which was an artist and Apparently, in this theory, he was slumming with this artist in the East End. And during this time, he meets Annie Elizabeth Crook in a shop and falls in love with her. They live together, and Annie becomes pregnant and gives birth to a daughter named Alice. The queen's furious and has them taken from the home. Eddie's returned to his family but Annie's sent to a hospital where she's experimented on until she loses all of her memory. Now, Alice was with Mary Jane Kelly, who was employed as her nanny. Mary Jane Kelly had been a sex worker in the past, but she was employed working as a nanny for them. And when this happened, when the parents were taken, Mary Jane Kelly, who knew about this conspiracy and knew that her life was in danger, immediately took Alice to these nuns, left her with nuns, and returned to the East End where she began to drink and work the streets again. She also started talking to her friends about things that she knew about the royal family. So this made her and her friends targets. And so the queen sends men to take care of this problem. They invented Jack the Ripper and used this serial killer story to kill the women who knew too much about this royal conspiracy. So the problem with this theory is there is no evidence that any of this is true. But it makes a good theory, right? Uh, Michael Ostrong. So Michael was born in 1833. He was a Russian doctor who was said to be homicidal and dangerous. 
He had a history of mental instability and a long history of theft. He was said to be cruel to women. And the reason he's a suspect is his history of cruelty to women. He carried surgical knives. His whereabouts during the Whitechapel murders was never established. But his history is of theft and petty crime with no violence mentioned. And he can't really be placed in Whitechapel. So although he could fit this, there really isn't a strong connection for him. You have Jacob Levy, who was born in 1856. He was married and had children. He was a butcher by trade. Uh, Jacob had contracted syphilis, uh, possibly from sex workers in Whitechapel, and his disease was untreated. In 1886, he was placed in an asylum for 12 months when his wife reported that he was hearing things and was afraid he would do something he might regret if he wasn't restrained. She reported he would wander the streets at night. His illness not only destroyed his health, but nearly ruined the family's business. He was a short man of five foot three and had a violent temper. So reasons he's a suspect, he fits the description. Remember, the eyewitnesses said that this man was anywhere from five foot three to five foot nine. The wife reported he did not sleep and would wander the streets at night. He was erratic in behavior and worried he may harm somebody. He lived in the area, so he knew the area well and would be able to escape after a murder. He was a butcher, so he would be able to carve up a body pretty easily. And he died in July 29th. 1891 of his disease and coincidentally the murder stopped after this. George Chapman or Severin Klosowski, he went by both names, born December 14, 1865. He completed his studies to become a surgeon in 1885 but failed to become a surgeon. He moved to London in 1887 where he found work as a hairdresser. He married Lucy Battersky within five weeks of meeting her. However, he was still married to his first wife, whom he'd left in Poland. In 1891, they moved to New Jersey. This is where he changed his name from Severin Klosowski to George Chapman and remarried. George's wives started to die and it, it was found that he was poisoning them. Why he's a suspect? He was known to beat his wives and threatened Lucy, telling her he was going to cut off her head. He had a large knife under his bed. He was in Whitechapel at the time of the murders and then in America in the vicinity of Carrie Brown when she died. Uh, then we have a theory of Jill the Ripper. Uh, one of the lead detectives in the case at the time theorized that the killer might be a woman with midwife experience. The reasons this is plausible is that a female would be able to get close to other women, even with the fear of the murderer on the streets. You know, a woman would trust another woman. A midwife would have the necessary medical and anatomical knowledge. After Mary Jane Kelly's death, a couple of people reported seeing her based on the clothing that Mary had worn. And so if this woman 
put on Mary Jane Kelly's clothing because it did say that her room was covered in blood. Her clothing might have been covered in blood. So if she had put on some clothing of Mary Jane Kelly's, then people would might have said they saw Mary Jane Kelly because this woman had a similar look and was dressed in her clothing. Mary Jane Kelly was pregnant at the time of her murder and could have turned to a midwife for an abortion. And no one was actually looking for a woman at the time of these murders. So even though all these witnesses came forward with statements about men they had seen, nobody was describing the women that they were seeing on the streets. Nobody was talking about the women that they saw these other women talking to because nobody suspected a woman. It's also been brought up that perhaps the murderer dressed as a woman to escape after the murders. You have Chaim Himes. Um, he was born February 8, 1855, was married and had two children. He sold fruit in the Whitechapel area. And he was admitted to an asylum in 1889 due to having epileptic fits, after which he would become very violent and homicidal. At one point, he hit his mother in the head while attacking his wife. And at another time, he stabbed his wife. Why he's a suspect? He fits the description, just like many other men at that time. He had violent tendencies, especially against women. It seems a lot of men did. He lived in the area and knew it well, which would allow him to escape easily. One witness, Joseph Levy, lived near the family and may have recognized him with Catherine Eddowes. Kind of didn't say anything, maybe got scared and didn't want to say anything because he was afraid of what would happen. Uh, the killing stopped after he was incarcerated in the asylum but there's no evidence tying him to any of the killings or any of the women. You have George Hutchinson. Remember, he was a witness. He was born October 1st, 1866, and he gave a very detailed description of the man that Mary Jane Kelly was with. He was unemployed, and he is a suspect because he was local to the area, so he could have escaped easily. He waited three days before talking to police about the description of the man that he had seen. And his description was very, very detailed. The most detailed of any of the witnesses. Carl Ferdinand Fagenbaum. So his real name was actually Anton Zahn. But he used a lot of aliases and eventually changed his name to Carl Fagenbaum. He was a sailor for most of his life and traveled across Europe and America. He was five foot four, 124 pounds, medium complexion, dark hair, gray eyes. And during his trial in 1894, he was sketched as having a thick mustache. Uh, he was on trial for the murder of Juliana Hoffman, who he was renting a room from and he slit her throat. Why he's a suspect? He somewhat meets the description given by witnesses. And we have to remember that witnesses seen these men in the dark. And so complexion, you know, fair, medium, it would really depend on what the lighting was like. 
He traveled a lot back and forth between Europe and America on a ship, making it easy for him to disappear. He told his lawyer he was in London at the time of the Whitechapel murders. He was also in America in the same areas as some of the other mutilation-type murders that mirrored the Ripper. His lawyer reported Carl was responsible for the following Ripper-esque murders. In January 1889, the murder and mutilation of six sex workers in Nicaragua. October 1889, murder and dismemberment of a sex worker in Germany. April 11, 1890, the murder of Lottie Morgan, a sex worker in Wisconsin. April 28, 1890, the murder and mutilation of a woman in Germany. December 4, 1890, the murder and mutilation of a peasant girl in Switzerland. April 24, 1891, the murder of Carrie Brown. October 25, 1891, the murder and mutilation of Hedwig Nitsch in Germany. January 31, 1892, the murder of Elizabeth Sr. in New Jersey. April 3, 1892, the murder of a sex worker in Germany. And August 31, 1894, the murder of Juliana Hoffman in New York City. According to Carl's lawyer, he was in each area at the time of the murder, and when Carl was arrested and later executed the mur for the murder of Juliana Hoffman, these types of murders stopped around the world. Carl, as a suspect, really depends on the accuracy, though, of his lawyer's statements, which was not made until after Carl's death. However, if these statements are true, he is a good suspect. You have Alfred Blanchard, who confessed to the Whitechapel murders. He had a similar look to the witness descriptions. He told others he kept the women quiet by placing his thumb on their windpipe. He was released because he was found to have been in Manchester September through the time of the murders. So they don't think he could have done it, but he did confess and he did have a plausible way of how he kept them quiet while he killed them. Joseph Barnett, he was born in 1858. He was born and raised in Whitechapel. He knew Mary Jane Kelly. They'd actually lived together for a while. He was 30 years old, medium build, five foot seven, fair complexion, blue eyes, and a mustache. And the reason he is a suspect is he fits the description. He knew the area. He had a connection with at least one of the victims and was said to have been tired of her selling herself. There were ginger beer bottles at his home and ginger beer bottles were mentioned in the Dear Boss letter. And Mary Jane Kelly's door was locked when the police arrived, so the killer either had a key or went out the window. Okay, and we have Prince Albert Victor, also known as Eddie. So again, we're back to the royal conspiracy. Uh, Prince Albert, or Eddie, was said to be slow mentally. He hunted and knew how to dress a deer, so he would be able to use a knife. And he would have been able to get away with a lot because he was a prince. 
But why he's not a good suspect, you know, royal records show that he wasn't in London at the time of some of the murders, but that could be changed to throw suspicion off of him. Would he be allowed to wander around the East End alone? Probably not. But would his guards have stopped him from killing sex workers if he wanted to? Probably not. And then we have Herman Webster Mudgett, also known as H.H. Holmes. Holmes, who I will cover at a later date because he is also very fascinating, was an American-based serial killer who has long been touted as a ripper suspect. Holmes had medical experience. Well, he had the money. He had the means. The ripper murders ended in 1891 and Holmes murders started in 1891. It was possible for him to travel to London at the time of the murders. But the reason he doesn't make a good suspect is that the motives are different because Holmes was motivated for money and not for the sheer pleasure of murder. But he still makes a pretty good suspect. There are said to be over 500 suspects. So these are just a few of them that I like the most. If there's anybody that you think makes a good suspect, I would love to hear about that. Um, but this is the story of Jack the Ripper. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Bye. <music>